You're listening to Food for the Future on 980 CFPL, Curious Cast, and where you get your podcasts. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill. I'm Peggy O'Neill, host of Food for the Future, a weekly podcast that brings the humanities to today's food dialogue by showcasing everyday people trying to make a difference. This show is part of the series Our World, featuring stories from agri-food leaders who spend their lives contributing to unity for humanity. Today, we're speaking with Lance Wolliver, Executive Director at Wildlife Preservation Canada, about collaborating with farmers and ranchers. Welcome, Lance. Hi, Peggy. Uh, thanks for asking me to be a guest. It's wonderful to have you here, Lance. Lance, can you start us off with what Wildlife Preservation Canada is? What's the mission? What do you do? We're a not-for-profit national charity. Uh, It was established in 1985. We're one of only a few in the country that carry out hands-on programs to save endangered species from extinction. So we uh, focus on species that are just about to disappear from Canada. And we currently have active programs uh, in Ontario and British Columbia. There are a lot of other excellent organizations that are habitat protection focused or carry out outreach and education, which we also do. But we have an additional focus on conservation, breeding and reintroductions, which means that we bring some animals into captivity and we either breed them and release their young back into the wild. Or we do something called head starting, which means that we bring wild eggs or hatchlings uh, for animals like turtles, for example, into captivity. And then we protect them until they're older and have a better chance of survival, and then we release them back to the wild. Uh, we do quite a bit more, but these would be kind of like the typical examples of the what we call hands-on work that we do. Okay, so a very specific mission, been around since 1985, Wildlife Preservation Canada, and it's very much more preservation-focused. You had talked about endangered species, um, species almost ready to disappear. So can you tell us what the difference specifically between preservation and conservation is? When we were established way back in the 1980s, uh, conservation biology was a pretty new discipline and the word wasn't even being used that much and not as commonly as preservation. We're also founded by a British organization, uh, but we've, we've now become our, our own uh, our own entity. And they were called the Jersey Wildlife Preservation Trust. We took apart their name. And um, one interesting thing around that is that our founder was a famous author named Gerald Durrell and a famous conservationist. And um, so there's quite a history behind our organization. But uh, I kind of, I personally see the two words as being slightly different philosophically. For me, preservation means that we kind of, we take a, we take a stand um, to make sure that no more species are lost to extinction. Whereas conservation has more of a sense that we'll keep animals around and conserve them, kind of like in quotes, um, which means that some uh, could be lost, but that's just my interpretation. But um, we really are very much about taking a stand now and not letting any other species disappear. Okay, so lots of work being done then to preserve a lot of species. And can you give us an example or a couple of examples of the types of species that you focus on? Sure. We made a a strategic choice to focus on the most endangered of all Canadian species. So these are the ones that are just about to disappear from Canada. So this also means that we focus on smaller species like turtles and frogs and snakes, butterflies, bumblebees and songbirds. Uh, And these are often animals that no one else uh, works with but they're the ones that need the most urgent help, and they are also critical parts of any ecosystem. Our bumblebee and butterfly programs are a good example because these are native pollinators that are critically important for the roles that they play in pollination of uh, our native Canadian plants, but also for crop production. 
Right. This shows food for the future and um, the ecosystem overall, but you're talking particularly about pollinators and other um, species that affect the soil and help the health of the overall, not just ecosystem, but the agri-food system. Thank you for making that point. You work with Canadian biologists. You mentioned the conservation biology was a brand new idea in the 80s, and we we hear more about them now, but we have uh, a lot more expertise and a lot more unique things that are being done. So how do Canadian biologists find new ways of doing things? And can you give us an example of a new method that's being used to help preserve endangered species, particularly frogs, butterflies, honeybees, some of the smaller salamanders, things like that? Sure. I've actually got a few, but I'll, I'll keep each, each of them kind of quick. Okay. Um, but this is actually one of the things that I'm most proud of mm-hmm. um, because for each of our programs, we are developing these new techniques, um, not just for the individual species that we work with, but um, techniques that can then be used for other similar species across North America and around the world. So, for example, we are actually the only organization in the Northern Hemisphere that's developing techniques to breed endangered bumblebees uh, and to determine how to release them into the wild. Similarly, we're the only organization that's using conservation breeding and release to save a migratory songbird. Uh, and so we've had to develop new techniques for that. Uh, it's called Eastern Loggerhead Strike, and we'll actually um, talk about it a bit more later. Mm-hmm. Uh, for frogs, we've uh, very recently developed new techniques to treat frogs during winter for an invasive, introduced and deadly chytrid fungus. And it's a disease that's been destroying crop populations all around the world. But one of the most interesting new techniques that our team has developed is the use of creating artificial hibernacula, which are hibernation burrows made out of EVC piping um, mm. for the reintroduction of eastern Massasauga rattlesnakes in areas where they disappeared in um, southern Ontario. But the great thing is that after we've developed these techniques in our programs, we can then share them with other conservation organizations starting up similar programs for other species. Right. So a lot of uh, that professional networking on many of the things that you had talked about. And you think you had mentioned the migratory songbirds and uh, you had talked about the loggerhead project. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, So one of the tricks with uh, introducing a migratory bird and especially migratory songbird, doing research on wild birds, um, we know that about 5% of them will die during migration in their first year. It's just a natural uh, level of mortality. So the trick with this one is there are lots of programs around the world that have uh, done reintroductions and recovery programs for uh, tropical species or species that are on islands that don't have to migrate. So you can you can release maybe uh, a few hundred over a couple of years and then take care of them and the population will rebound. But for a migratory songbird, what we're working on developing is how to produce larger numbers so that you're able to release several hundred each year. Uh, so that adds a whole new uh, dimension to the challenge. And also, we've done quite a bit of um, work with putting uh, transmitters on the birds and uh, helping set up a system called MODIS with a lot of um, other partners so that we're able to track where the birds are going to during the winter uh, in case that's where the, um, the highest levels of mortality are happening. So uh, that's fantastic that work is being done. And it just sounds like you've got a great network worldwide that you have places where you can share. And you had talked about tropical birds that might not work exactly for what it is we're doing in Canada, save some of the songbirds and other species that are avian. But you can draw on ideas and create our own unique approach and then really monitoring it. So tomorrow is World Wildlife Day uh, coming up on March 3rd. And what will Wildlife Preservation Canada be doing to participate in that initiative? 
prim- primarily it will be outreach work. So we're going to be uh, posting across all of our social media platforms a lot of positive conservation success stories and talking about the importance of saving Canada's wildlife diversity, as well as what we and other conservation organizations are doing and how people can help. Really, at the same time, all of our field teams will be working away as usual at uh, getting ready for the upcoming field seasons because most of our field seasons start in in the early spring. But really, uh, everyone could have a look online for those stories, um, lots of positive stories on our social media. Wonderful. And I think that that's so important is to um, show where we're making progress because we can all become overwhelmed with the very um, serious news we're hearing all the time. And it's why we do this show to t- find out what everyday people are doing in their in their roles, like your own uh, executive director at Wildlife Preservation Canada, but your teams, conservation biologists, farmers, um, other um, you know land trust uh, organizations, uh, whatever anyone is doing is helping us to head in the right direction. So thank you very much for that. We will watch on social media, Wildlife Preservation Canada, but also look more broadly to World Wildlife Day and see what's going on around the whole world. And I always find the days that the UNs coordinate a day for me to go to their websites and see what's happening in the world. And I see that, um, you know, people across the world are trying to reach for the same things. You know, we, we want to have a healthy planet. We want to have, you know, a positive environment and uh, we want to be together. So I think these uh, days are wonderful to celebrate. So we'll talk more about that. After the break, we'll discuss wildlife preservation projects with Lance Wolliver from Wildlife Preservation Canada. This is Food for the Future and I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill. Welcome back to Food for the Future on 980 CFPL, Curious Cast, and where you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill. You're listening to Food for the Future. We're speaking with Lance Wolliver, Executive Director at Wildlife Preservation Canada, about collaborative projects with farmers and ranchers. Lance, wildlife preservation and agriculture often work together. And can you give us an example of a successful project? Yeah, so a good example is a conservation program that we've been coordinating for the Eastern Loghead Shrike here in Ontario. Shrike is a fantastic little bird. Uh, They're a songbird, a bit smaller than a robin, but they have a lovely black mask. And they're also plucky little birds because um, they think of themselves as being a larger predator like a hawk. So they're hunting for larger (laughs) prey like snakes and frogs and other songbirds, uh, but even mammals like mice and voles. This means that they need short grasslands which is a critically endangered habitat now in Ontario, also across Canada. Um, but they need these short grasslands in order to uh, be able to see the smaller animals that they're hunting for. But those grasslands are actually only found in small areas in Ontario. One's near the um, Napanee Plains near Kingston, and the other is in the Cardin Plains near Aurelia. So we have developed a, a mutually beneficial partnership with cattle producers in these areas and in other places in Ontario where we would also like to see shrikes uh, return. Cattle grazing plays an important role in keeping grasslands short, which helps the strikes. And we provide land stewardship advice through resource materials and meetings with cattle ranchers. We also provide some funding support as an intermediary through government funding for infrastructure like fencing and equipment to remove scrub brush. And it took some time through community meetings and one-on-one meetings over tea and coffee to develop these relationships. But cattle farmers are now one of the most important allies and community leaders that we have in saving strikes from disappearing from Ontario. At the moment, the main thing is that uh, we still have even have strikes in Ontario through the through the project. We're still working on that challenge of um, uh, you know how many birds do we need and how much habitat do we need for them to become sustainable. 
Mm-hmm. So it'll be an ongoing project for a while yet. At the moment, we have uh, around 20 to 25 pairs, depending on the year. And the main thing is that without the work and the partnership with um, with local farmers, we wouldn't even be able to see the bird in uh, in Ontario. Those are staggering numbers. You know, when we talk about, we hear the word endangered species, and then when we actually start to talk about numbers, 20 pairs, we're talking about 40 birds, that's it. And so the work is really important in the collaborations with farmers. Thank goodness that you have them. And that also mentioning uh, the beef farmers particularly, I I think it's important to note that the UN just published a report on the importance of animal-based protein in a healthy human diet. And we need to think about the ecosystem we live in when we are thinking about broad and and long-term strategies and um, all that every part of the ecosystem does and and our habitat and our food system and all the things that we're all interested in. So the Shrikes have benefited from relationships with uh, ranchers and and beef farmers. So that's really wonderful to hear that that's uh, being done. And I know we're going to hear more good news and we can stay tuned on the Shrikes on the website, Wildlife Preservation Canada. Is there another project or initiative that you're particularly proud of, Lance? Um, yeah, this one would be even more uh, personal uh, because it was a project that I worked on as a, as a younger biologist, and it's actually in a very different part of the world than um, Ontario, but it kind of shows a similar um, similar pattern. So when I was a research student at York University, uh, and I was still being supported by Wildlife Preservation Canada, uh, I worked in the Dominican Republic with the world's rarest hawk, called Ridgeway's hawk. Well, at, the, at the time, nobody even knew uh, whether they were still around or how many were left, but so the remaining hawk habitat was also being used by local farmers. And when I arrived, the local communities didn't even know that the hawk was critically endangered and only found in the areas where they had their farms. I uh, lived in their village. And uh, once I spent time with them and they became aware of how unique the hawk was and that they were only found on the lands that they were farming, they became quite proud of this and uh, began to protect nest sites and habitats and um we um, built trust amongst uh, uh, myself and my team and the, and the local people. And then once the, the hawks were being better protected, the, um, the farmers were seeing a benefit for their crops because the um, hawk, while being quite small, also had rats, which of course helped their crops. Now the hawks are being better protected by the local communities and uh, no longer killed. So it's another sort of parallel where um, you can have this really beneficial and um, mutual relationship between a conservation project and uh, local farmers. And local farmers. So that collaboration is is really important between conservationists, farmers, ranchers, and others. Why do you think that collaborative model works best relative to, let's say, experts kind of you know coming in and saying, oh, well, this is how it's going to be, or, you know, experts either side, experts, farmers who know the land versus the person who's got all of the technical knowledge prepared at a university or elsewhere, a uh, researcher. What, what's the magic in that collaboration? I think it um, really works best because farmers and ranchers and local communities have that connection with the, with the land uh, and they need to in order to survive from year to year. So most are working and living in rural areas and they've grown up uh, in the country with, with um, the wildlife species around them. And most farmers that we work with um, have a real appreciation for nature and the animals around them. I think the key thing is for both the conservation organizations and local communities to get to know each other and develop that trust. And we really are aware that uh, we need to build strong relationship with local communities in order for recovery programs to be successful, especially long-term. 
Wonderful. Lance, this show is part of the Our World series where we take at least uh, once a month where we consider the world we live in and our role in it. And we look at ways our lives contribute to the earth. And one of the things that we need to do locally is continue to develop strong partnerships between conservation and agriculture. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I think um, local farmers and agricultural communities can look into different support pro programs that are offered by um, government that support wise and sustainable environmental management of their lands for wildlife. But it, I think it can also be as simple as reaching out to um, local conservation organizations in and around um, your own community and asking um, whether a partnership can be developed or what landowners and farmers can do to help. Uh, but it also comes from the other angle and vice versa with uh, conservation biologists focusing on developing partnerships with those, with local communities. Mm -hmm. And that's really how the partnership between the uh, cattle producers and our strike uh, recovery program began. Um, we knew that we had to work uh, in those particular areas because that was the habitat that the, that the birds required. So we basically just started at a small scale by having public community meetings and just started talking to each other and looking for ways to develop those win-win relationships. I think maybe for the wider public, doing some research to support purchase food from local farmers that are using uh, environmentally sustainable agricultural practices. Because I think um, over time, that's the kind of thing that would shift the needle towards more and more farmers choosing to help wildlife. Right. Thanks for bringing the consumer into the conversation, uh, Lance. Because some people will be listening to the show and really feel so connected. I think your messages are really important and really want to think about, well, what can I do? And by making sure that you, if you're in a position that you are able to, I know that we have uh, a lot of challenges with food costs right now, but where you can look into brands and food sources that align with your values. And those being some of the things you mentioned, local buying directly from the farmer, looking for brands that have on their website commitments to sustainability, the things that they are doing, produce food in an environmentally and socially sustainable way. So thank you for bringing the consumer into the dialogue. Where can listeners find out more about farmer rants or conservation projects uh, to protect wildlife? Um, there are a few places on the internet that are quite good. On our own website, uh, we have resources and stewardship guides for uh, landowners and ranchers, and um, we have information on, on that project. There's also another terrific conservation organization called Birds Canada that have developed something called a bird friendliness index. And cattle producers can choose to have the bird friendliness index measured on their farms and ranches. Part of their feeding um, become certified by the Canadian Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. So that's a, that's a good um, a resource. And although it won't be ready till later this year, Wildlife Preservation Canada are developing a standalone website mm -hmm. with resources for landowners, ranchers, and farmers on how to steward their lands for burrowing owls, which is another endangered grassland um, species here in Canada, and also for other grassland wildlife. And the great thing about this site is that we also have collected in this one um, place all of the different resources for farmers for all the various subsidy and funding support programs that are out there that can support them to manage their lands for both wildlife and agriculture. Um, anyone can send me or my team an email too at WPC, and um, we're always happy to provide uh, further information about um, where projects or resources can be found. Okay, thank you. So information in the Contact Us on Wildlife Preservation Canada website. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lance, to you and your entire team, really, for the hard work and the outcomes that you're achieving and the information that you're sharing. I'm really hopeful for our future. Thank you. Uh, I am too. 
Today on Food for the Future, we've been speaking with Lance Wolliver, Executive Director of Wildlife Preservation Canada, about collaborations with ranchers and farmers. Each week, to keep leadership growing together in agri-food, we leave you and your family or friends with something to talk about and something to do. Something to talk about, what could you do to help preserve wildlife in your area? Something to do, visit Wildlife Preservation Canada to learn more about the ways conservationists, farmers, and ranchers collaborate to provide global encouragement. Next week on the show, we return to the monthly series, Food for Thought. We'll discuss quality standards and inspections in agri-food. Don't miss a show. Subscribe on Curious Cast and all other major podcast platforms. I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill, and you've been listening to the weekly podcast, Food for the Future. Thank you to our Platinum Elite Level sponsor, Burn Bray Farms, Eggs for Life. Food for the Future with Peggy O'Neill airs every Saturday on 980 CFPL, Curious Cast, and where you get your podcasts.